We're talking these um, July mornings, um, as, as Natalie said on the announcements there, that we, we've got a couple of special services coming up with the Compassion Sunday and, and focusing on some of the stuff that we're doing in, in outreach uh, at the end of the month. But um, for this week and next week, we're going to just keep talking about the issue of friendship. And um, I think friendship is, is an absolutely vital part of our spiritual well-being. Um, I quoted one writer last week saying that it's as important as prayer and fasting in our spiritual development. It is such a vital part to our Christian faith. We do not and cannot go it alone. And um, Proverbs 27 says, just as lotions and fragrance give sensual delight, a sweet friendship refreshes the soul. And um, I want to I wanna pick up on some of the things I said last week and, and develop them uh, this morning as we speak of the power of friendship. Last week, um, we talked about the power of friendship. We talked about um, creation and, and God uh, creating the heavens and the earth and painting and, and speaking into existence light and dark and plants and animals and human life in his own image, and, and everything that God made he saw was good, it was so good. And yet one thing that God saw was not good was when man was alone. And he said it is not good for man to be alone. And we talked about the Trinity and the fellowship of the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We talked about actually how friendship and community is vitally important for our bodies, for our well-being, for our health. And, and uh, the release of oxytocin and the cuddle hormone or the endorphins that we get when we relate to other people, the, um, the rise in cortisol that happens, the stress hormone when, when we don't connect, when we are isolated, that it is literally good for us uh, to have friends physically and emotionally. And, and actually the whole of the law and the prophets, Jesus said when he was asked about the most important law, he said, they all hang on the fact that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. This relational axis of with God and with one another is absolutely central to our faith. We talked about the patterns of friendship last week, that Jesus has friends, that he is the master friend, that he uh, was a friend of sinners, that um, he, he had circles of friendship. He had the one in John, and then he had the three in James and Peter and John, and then he had the 12, and then he had the 72. And, and we can't be as close to, to everybody as we are to a few, but it is important to make and be purposeful in those friends. Jesus was prayerful and intent, intent in his friendship making. He went and prayed all night before he chose his disciples and it was absolutely essential who he surrounded himself with. And then we talked about three pillars of friendship last week. We talked about the importance of commonality when it comes to friends. In The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes of the moment when you connect with someone and you say, ah, oh, you too. You find someone that has the same interests or the same common ground. And you too. And we, we reflected on the fact as we came around the Lord's table that the utter and deepest commonality that we have is around Jesus Christ. That the beauty of uh, Christianity and, and the church is that although we are different colors and different uh, and genders and different backgrounds and different social settings and different economic uh, uh, classes and, and so on and so forth, that we coalesce around our relationship with Jesus Christ, our, our commonality. But also we talked about the importance of time when it comes to friendship, making time for people, and, and, that, and that you cannot make friends without investing time. To, to make a good friend, the research shows, takes about 300 hours of your investment before you have a really good friend. It doesn't just happen, you don't just drift into relationship, which is why it's so important uh, to um, give time to relating to one another, to friends. And also we talked last week about the importance of presence, of being present to one another, the, the effect of the pandemic when we were isolated and couldn't meet in, in together. And even though there were benefits to online services and those that can't get in and those that are housebound and so on, it's still important to be present to one another, to uh, be in each other's physical presence and to touch and to hear and to listen 
uh, to one another. And we talked about being good listeners. It is not good for man to be alone. That is the essence of um, what God said about us as human beings. Uh, Jenny has got an aunt and an uncle in the States, in the, in the southern parts of the States. And uh, um, the uncle is called Mark, and uh, they live in Mississippi. And we went to visit them a few years ago. And Mark took it upon himself to introduce us to the joy of um, the American food grits. And so he said, oh, I just make the best grits. I'm going to make you all grits for breakfast. And um, so he said it's just, the, it's just the perfect combination of shrimp and, and cornmeal and, and uh, my special chicken broth. He said, you're going to love it. And so he made these grits and... Um, he served it to us, to me, Jenny, and the kids, and uh, we started to eat these, these grits. And, uh, and uh, he looked and, with anticipation at uh, our faces, and um, the, um, the outcome was, as I, as I later told him, the Brits do not like grits. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a combination of wallpaper paste Cold porridge. <laughs> oh man, it was disgusting. <laughs> but the southern, they, they love grits in the south. John Ortberg says a friend of mine was ordering breakfast during a recent trip to the south and he saw grits on the menu. And being a Dutchman, he had never been very clear on the nature of the item. So he asked the waitress, What exactly is a grit? Her response was classic Southern hospitality. Honey, they don't come by themselves. <laughs> Grits do not exist in isolation. No grit is an island. You can't order a single grit. They're a package deal. Dallas Willard says the natural condition of life for human beings is reciprocal rootedness in others. Honey, you don't come by yourself. So I want to talk about people and uh, the pillars of friendship again this morning. And one of our values as a church is that we want to be people-focused. And the statement says about that value is that we want to be a church that is constantly and naturally reaching out to unchurched people. And to be a church where people can belong and can experience community and play their part. There's three elements to that statement, really. First element is that we want to be a church that is constantly and naturally reaching out to people that are unchurched, people that are not here this morning, people that don't go to church, people that are not interested in Christianity, or maybe they are, but they have not yet found faith in Jesus Christ. We want to be that kind of church that do that naturally, that do it constantly, that reach out to those who are not yet here who are not yet having faith in Jesus Christ, because we believe that we have found the good news, the gospel, and we want to share it. The second element of that statement about being a people-focused church is that we want to be a church where people can belong and experience community. And the third element is that we want to be a church where people can play their part. So I want to focus on those three elements this morning with three Bible vignettes, Bible stories around them. We won't go into too deeply, but just to highlight each of those aspects of friendship. And I want to be practical again with you and talk realities of what it is to have friends, to make friends, and to work hard at this aspect of our church life. In Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, there's a story that many of us heard when, if, and when we went to Sunday school, and it's the story of Zacchaeus. And in this story, in Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus is a diminutive character. He's a small man, and he can't see past the crowds, but he wants to see Jesus. And so um, he climbs up a sycamore tree um, because he wants to see Jesus as he passes by. Jesus was passing by. And Jesus encounters Zacchaeus, who was a kind of a hated tax collector kind of character. He wasn't the most popular of characters. And yet there was something about Jesus that piqued Zacchaeus' interest. And as Jesus walked by, he did something that good friends always, he noticed Zacchaeus. In all of the crowds, in all of the people, he looked up 
And he looked up into the tree, and he saw Zacchaeus, and he said, Zacchaeus, come down here. Come down. Uh, I want to come to your house. I want to get to know you. I want to have dinner with you. And Jesus met Zacchaeus where he was and brought him to a place of salvation and faith. He said, today salvation has come to your house, Zacchaeus. Salvation has come to your house. Because Jesus walked by. He was passing through, it says, but he noticed Zacchaeus. St. John of the Cross said that mission, mission, reaching out to the unchurched, is putting love where love is not. That's what mission is. It's putting love where love is not. And I want to talk about a few things in us reaching out in a natural way, in a friendship way. The first is the ministry of small gestures. The ministry of small gestures. Aesop said, no act of kindness, no matter how small, is ever wasted. Have you ever been on the receiving end of an act of kindness that just blindsides you? You don't expect it. When people are kind to you, especially strangers, if a stranger is kind to you, does something for you, something unexpected, it utterly blindsides you. The other thing I've noticed as, as we've driven around, and Jenny was telling me a time recently, as she accidentally, I don't know if she cut them off or there was some kind of issue with, with driving and this guy, this guy rolled down his window and shouted several expletives at her and I was thinking just how unkind people are, how unnecessarily unkind, how we go from naught to 100 immediately, how those vicious and nasty words roll off people's tongues sometimes, how cutting those words are, and how unnecessary it is. And, and the antidote to that, those moments of pure kindness, those little gestures that make all the difference in people's lives. Small acts of kindness can make somebody's day then these, and, and, and this is for people that are in our crowd. They're not necessarily our closest friends. They're not necessarily people that we will ever meet again. There are people in our lives who we will meet only once in our life. We will only meet them once. And they will be fleeting encounters that we have with them, like Jesus and Zacchaeus. But when the end credits roll on the screenplay of our life, these are the people that will be listed as extras. I don't know about you, but when I watch sitcoms sometimes, like Friends, or I like to watch, I like to watch the extras. Have you ever noticed, like in, in the cafe scenes, or you've got the main characters that are having the dialogue, but in the background, there's always all these extras. I always wonder what they're talking about, because they're like acting as if they're talking, and... And I look at the extras sometimes, and, and there are people in our lives that we will meet but once. They are perhaps the extras in our lives. But how will we encounter them? What will we do as we meet them? What will we say? What fragrance will we leave behind us? Will we carry with us the fragrance of Jesus? The person at the school gates that you rub shoulders with, that you just don't know what's going on in their life. Or the barista who makes your coffee in the morning, or the colleague you pass in the corridor, for whom a gesture or a kind word may make all the difference. I was up on the hoe recently walking our dog, and uh, this man approached me, he was probably around 50 years old, and he said, what kind of dog is that? So I told him, it's a Cocker Spaniel, and uh, he said, oh, we're going to get one of those soon, my daughter and I. We've had the toughest of years. And and then he just started to tell me his life story. <laughs> and uh, I just met a guy. And he was telling me about his year, and he was telling me about what had happened to him. Just a random man on the whole. 50 years old, looked like he had it all together. In fact, I think he had a top-end job from what he was telling me. And yet his life was unraveling. And... We talked for five or ten minutes. I didn't share the gospel with him. I didn't tell him I was a Christian. But he said to me at the end, thank you so much for talking to me. And then he wandered away. And there are so many people that we meet or encounter on the fringes of our lives. They're in the crowd element of our friendships, our relationships. But how we touch them, how we speak to them, how we encounter them is so important because we are carriers of the presence of God. We are carriers of the presence of Jesus. 
Jenny and her Alpha team went recently to London to an Alpha conference, and they said that it takes eight touches to invite someone to Alpha. Eight touches, eight visions of a poster or an invitation or a mention of a course. It takes eight times the statistics show before someone responds or opens up to the fact, oh, maybe I'll go to that Alpha course. What are our touches leaving behind when we meet people? The ministry of small gestures, not to be underestimated, not to be missed. Jesus noticed people. Jesus spotted people. He touched them. He spoke to them. And sometimes he was proactive, and other times he was reactive. Sometimes people came to him and asked him questions, and he responded, and he had time for them. And other times he was proactive, and he would go and find a woman drawing water at a well who who a Jew would normally not speak to, and he would speak to her, and he would encounter her, and he would unravel her and share the gospel with her and the love of God with her. And then in, in a, addition to the ministry of the small gestures, there's the ministry of small talk. Some of us who are perhaps introverts say, oh, I'm not very good at small talk. I don't really do small talk. Joseph Epstein, the Jewish writer I mentioned last week in his book on friendship, says, and writes of the sweet pleasantries of small talk. Gravitas is fine in its place, but then so is levitas, which I for one require to sustain not only my friendships, but my own well-being. Given a choice, I always almost prefer small talk to big talk. Small talk, Eugene Peterson says, provides us with a conversational context for the actual undramatic work of living by faith in the fog and the drizzle. When we engage in small talk, he says, we are likely to become aware of the tiny shoots of green grace that are growing in the backyards of people's lives. You never quite know what you're going to pick up on when you engage in small talk. C.S. Lewis said, oh, how I loathe big issues in one of his letters. Most of our lives are not spent on the big issues. We have jobs and we have routine tasks and we have daily chores and we have everyday obligations, but God lives and moves in such things. And when we take the time to put out a hand or to engage with someone in conversation, we might just be partnering with the Holy Spirit. We might just discover the green shoots of grace in someone's life. Some good questions to ask if you want to engage in small talk. What's been keeping you busy recently? What keeps you busy when you're not in Plymouth Christian Centre on a Sunday morning? What are you looking forward to in the next week or so? What's going well for you at the moment? What is a bit of a challenge? Last week we talked about people who are good listeners. And you never know what you will discover when you engage in the ministry of small talk, which Jesus did all the time. He noticed Zacchaeus. He called him down. He knew his name. He drew him from the tree. He went to his house. He ate with him. He turned his life around. And sometimes God actively invites us to play a one-off part in the journey of someone seeking him. If we're going to be the kind of people that naturally reach out to the unchurched. We need to be people that know the ministry of small gestures and the ministry of small talk. But there's another very potent ministry that we can practice in this area, and that's the ministry of hospitality. Food, glorious food, and radical hospitality, just not grits. Food (laughs) played a massive part in the way that Jesus interacted. I studied Jesus' life and the making of disciples, and food. Food is at the center of it. (laughs) They called Jesus a glutton because he was always eating food with people. (laughs) The bread of life, sharing life with others. And what did he say to Zacchaeus when he looked up at that tree? Zacchaeus, let's go have dinner. Let's go eat, Zacchaeus. And as they ate in Zacchaeus' house, Jesus shed life with him and salvation. Turn the man's life around. Food plays such an important part. It's central to our faith. Perhaps one of the reasons, says Phil Knox in his book, The Best of Friends, 
that we are facing a crisis in friendship is that we are eating together less. The amount of time friends spend eating together has decreased by 45% in the last 30 years. I think this is really important. In the Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield models how radical hospitality has changed the lives of many people in her circle of friends. She says, have a house filled with God's people who can then help our neighbours see the hand of God in the everyday details of their life. I want to show you a clip now of Rosaria Butterfield talking about radical hospitality and how it changed her life and how it changed our life. This is based on her work, The Gospel Comes with a house key. It's about five minutes long, but it's worth watching. Let's watch it together on the screens. We live at this time where so many Christian ideas are understood as hate speech. After the Obergefell decision legalized gay marriage, that put the gospel on a collision course with the new law of the land. And I think many Christians have been struggling with, well, how do I speak, what do I do, how do I move forward? Home is a vital place to invite your neighbors in to have some heartfelt conversations. We can love our children together, we can let some things slide, even though the world we live in would say that we're supposed to be enemies. To me, hospitality is the ground zero of the Christian faith. I was raised in an Italian family. There were some issues in my house that made it almost impossible to have people in. So hospitality didn't really become endemic to my life until I had set up a home of my own. I was a professor at Syracuse. I lived as an out lesbian feminist in New York. In our LGBTQ community, somebody's home was open every night of the week. And there was never a question, where will I go if I need help? Because the community itself is organic and fluid, and that was how we dealt with crises. After I wrote my tenure book, I really wanted to write a book that was on my heart. Why is the religious right such a hateful community? And why do they hate people like me? I was on a war against two things, patriarchy and stupid. So I was really curious to know why relatively decent people would use the Bible in such a hateful way. So I wrote an editorial and it brought all kinds of attention my way, which I didn't really expect. But one of the things that brought my way was a letter from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. When Ken and his wife Floyd invited me to dinner, I, I was happy. I, th I thought of Ken as my unpaid research assistant. And they were fine with the fact that I, I wanted to read the Bible to critique it. That began a research journey that changed my life. But it wasn't research that changed my life. In Ken and Floyd's home, the way that they practiced hospitality became a living, breathing example of the theology that they were teaching. After my first dinner at Ken and Floyd's house, Ken gave me a big hug, Floyd gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. We said, we'll catch up next week. This was fun, can't wait to do it again. They did not share the gospel with me and they did not invite me to church. And that was so wonderful because what it showed to me was that they didn't see me as a project. They actually saw me as a neighbor. Now, I didn't step foot in the church for two years, but every week I was in their home. And every week, it was clear that pretty much anything could go. We could ask anything, Ken and Floyd were fine. And that process of dialogue and table fellowship was compelling. It was deeply compelling. 
I did not come to faith because I stopped feeling like a lesbian. It's not that I got all of my worldview issues just completely cemented with a happy Christian evangelism, not at all. I came to faith because I became convicted that Jesus is who he says he is. Ephesians 4.29 is our watchword, that we are to impart grace to the hearer. I might not agree with everything that you hold to be near and dear, but because we are neighbors, I don't have to say everything that's on my heart. And you don't have to say everything that's on your heart right now. We can put some of our worldview issues aside. And over years of this, the gospel takes on a momentum that is compelling to people. I think we need to give each other the reminder that it's God who saves. It's not about certainly us being perfect or our words being perfect, but show up we must in the lives of unbelievers. What comes naturally to me and what comes naturally to you is to hang out with people who are like us. <laughs> people who can maybe finish our sentences, people who don't scare us. But hospitality, biblically speaking, takes strangers and makes them neighbors, and takes neighbors and makes them family of God. It's a great joy to see the gospel bring people together who are supposed to be enemies. And it's a great joy to know that God never gets the address wrong. And if your neighbors aren't people you know yet, there's a blessing waiting for you. power of hospitality and the gift of hospitality in reaching out to those who don't yet know Jesus. Perhaps one of the reasons we're facing a crisis in friendship is that we are eating together less. Another great place to me for hospitality is the Alpha Course where people come and eat a meal together and sit around a table and talk and listen and ask questions about the Christian faith. The reason, or one of the reasons Alpha works so well is because it is a place of hospitality, a place of welcome, a place where people can connect around a table. We're running our next Alpha course in September, and you're very welcome to come. It's the first aspect of our, our statement, which I'm just drawing on this morning as I talk about friendship, is that this church exists to naturally and constantly reach out to those that are unchurched. And that's part of being friendship, the ministry of small gestures, the ministry of small talk, and the ministry of hospitality. The second aspect of that statement that I read out at the start of my message today was that we need to be a church and want to be a church where people can belong and experience community. Now, there's a story, my second story, um, is the story of the paralytic whose friends brought him to Jesus on a mat because he couldn't walk. They laid him on a mat. They brought him to Jesus. The story is recorded in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. And these friends of the mat, they bring Jesus, and because there's such a crowd around him that can't get to, they can't get to him, they can't get near, they climb up on the roof of the house. Many of you know the story. Pull back the tiles, lower their friend, and bring him to Jesus. They are friends of the mat. Being a church where people can belong and experience community. We all of us need friends of the mat. We all of us need people that will bring us to Jesus. We're all of us paralyzed in some way. It's amazing and yet not so amazing to me when you dig beneath the surface that everyone, everyone has got their issues. From the stay-at-home mum to the outwardly most successful businessman, from the young person to the most senior we all of us need an encounter with Jesus Christ. He's our only hope. And when Jesus meets this man on a mat who was brought to him by his friends, he sees their faith, not the man's faith. He sees the faith of his friends that bring him in his vulnerable state as he's lying there and he can't move and he's surrounded by all of these people. And Jesus says to him, friend, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He dealt with 
when he met this paralyzed man, this vulnerable person, he dealt with his greatest need, which was to be forgiven of his sin, of his wrongdoing, to be set free from guilt. While we may concern ourselves with many, many things in life, many issues that trouble us, occupy us, lay us low, ultimately, the greatest problem of our lives is sin, alienation from God. The greatest need of our hearts is to be forgiven and set free from our sin. The greatest miracle that can happen to you is not the healing of a physical body, but it is the healing of a human heart. It is the forgiveness of sin. The greatest miracle that can happen to my friend and my colleague is to be forgiven of their sins and to be made into a new person in and through Jesus Christ. And Jesus dealt with this issue first before anything else. You know when you watch a politician on a news show and they're being interviewed on television and they get asked one question and they give a completely different answer? It's an art that politicians master. They come with what they want to say and regardless of the question, they give their answer. And sometimes it's like that with Jesus. It's a good answer, but it's got nothing to do with the question I asked. People are asking a lot of questions. Where can I find security? How can I be happy? How can I be significant? What am I to do with my life? And when people encounter Jesus, they might ask many different questions. Why is there suffering in the world? Why is there so much pain and sickness? Why are so many Christians judgmental? But sometimes Jesus doesn't answer these questions, at least not straight away. But the answer that he gives deals with your greatest need, a new heart, a relationship with God, an eternal hope, a future in heaven. With the paralyzed man, Jesus went on to deal with the other issues. He healed him and he commanded him to take up his mat and to walk. Jesus is the only one, though, the only one that can deal with our sin issue, our broken heart issue, our life issues. He has the power to restore and redeem your life and mine. Now, if we want to be a people that can belong in community, we have to realize that we come with an as-is tag. John Ortberg wrote a book called Everybody is Normal Until You Get to Know Them. He starts the book by writing about those items that you see in the market, in the shop, that says as is on the tag. If you buy it, you're buying it as you see it. That's why it's reduced. The zipper is broken, it doesn't zip. The button is broken, it doesn't butt. You have to buy it as it is. That's how it comes. It's slightly flawed, it's irregular. You're gonna find a flaw here, a stain that won't come out. These items are not normal. And of course, writes John Ortberg, the most painful part of this is realizing that I am in the as-is department. We all want to look normal, to think of ourselves as normal, but the writers of Scripture insist that no one is totally normal, at least not as God defines it. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's standard. Every one of us have habits that we struggle to control, past deeds that we are ashamed of, that we cannot undo, flaws that we struggle to correct. This is the cast of characters that God gets to work with in his church. And yet in this strange world of as is that we are all in as we look around a church fellowship and a people trying to make friends with each other, we all come and none of us are normal and we all come as is. And yet in all of that, we crave connection. We crave to belong, to be part of something bigger than ourselves, to have connection with God and connection with others. It is not good for man to be alone. Lord Byron once said, Friendship is love without wings. It is something that doesn't fly away. This is where honesty and vulnerability comes in. One of the joys of friendship is to be known and to be loved, to reveal ourselves flaws and all, and to find love and friendship. We need, says Ken Shigematsu, a friend in whose presence we can be completely open and transparent, a sole friend with whom we can relax our heart. 
Have you ever noticed that porcupines are not cuddly? Have you noticed that in the movies, they've made movies with pretty much every animal that you can think of. There's an animal, there's a movie about a pig, there's movies about dogs, there's movies about elephants and all kinds of animals. I'm not yet aware of a movie that's been made about a cuddly porcupine. They're not party animals, and when their privacy is threatened, a porcupine has two primary responses. One is run away and hide, and the other is get up close and personal with some of those famous quills. A porcupine's body is covered with 30,000 quills, miniature lances, barbs that expand and become more firmly embedded when they are thrust into the flesh of a perceived enemy. So how come porcupines are not fully alone or extinct? Where do little porcupines come from? John Ortberg says, in the late autumn, a young porcupine's thoughts turn to love. But love turns out to be a risky business when you're a porcupine. <laughs> Females are open to dinner and a movie only once a year, and the window of opportunity closes quickly. And a girl porcupines know is the most widely respected turndown <laughs> in all of the animal kingdom. Fear and anger make them dangerous little creatures to be around. Altberg then outlines the porcupine's dilemma, which is really our dilemma as well. How do you get close without getting hurt? When people become angry or wounded or fearful, we tend to act like porcupines. We want to run away and hide, or we decide to strike back. We may not have quills, but we can come up with at least 30,000 ways to diminish and disrespect other people with our words. So how do porcupines ever experience love? Naturalist David Costello writes, males and females may remain together for some days before mating. You didn't know this morning when you came to church that you were going to find about porcupine mating, did you? But <laughs> they may touch paws and even walk on their hind feet in the so-called dance of the porcupines. It seems like a miracle, but it really does happen. Porcupines decide to pull in their quills, and they learn how to dance. And we as human porcupines are called to do the same. Even with that other porcupine reclining in your family room, living down the street, or stirring strong feelings at work or church, the Apostle Paul makes this utterly practical. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears with them when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. It's Romans 12, 14 to 19 in the message version. The second part of friendship and the second vignette and the second part of our statement is that we want to belong to a church where people can belong be long and be part of it and experience true community. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes so much about this. And he said, the sooner that we become disenfranchised with a false image of what community is, the sooner we can truly experience real community. Community is the place where the person you least like lives, said one author. And thirdly, the third aspect of that statement it's a church where people can play their part. A church where people can play their part. And in Exodus chapter 18, Moses is leading the people of Israel. He's a great leader. He's done great things. God has used him powerfully. He's, he's delivered the people from Egypt and from oppression and slavery. God has used him 
powerfully. And, and he's sitting as judge over the people in Exodus 18. And they come to him with their problems from morning till night. The people come to Moses, the leader, and so he can sit and judge their issues. And then one day, his father-in-law comes, Jethro. He says, Moses, what are you doing? You're going to burn yourself out if you carry on acting like this. You can't sit as judge over all of these people. You need to do this differently. You need to, you need to bring on other leaders. You need, to, you need to spread the load. You need to set up new leadership patterns. What you're doing is wrong. And, uh, and he gives him advice and shares with him what he should do. And it says that Moses did everything that his father-in-law Jethro suggested. And it was a turning point for the people of Israel. We want to be a church that loves and nurtures children and young people and that cherishes and honors older people. And Phil Knox says, churches are one of the few places in our society where the generations gather so beautifully together. When I was at university, the only time I saw babies and pensioners was when I went to church. And Ken Shigematsu says, while many of us have known the sustaining friendship of a peer, as was true for David and Jonathan, we can also experience the blessing of a friendship with someone of a different generation. Richard Raw says that every young man needs an older man in his life. Every young woman needs an older woman in their life, not to receive knowledge from them, but to receive their spirit. Intergenerational relationships. Everybody needs a Jethro, and everybody needs a Joshua. Moses had a Jethro. Moses had a, an older person that he went to that advised him. He was a powerful alpha male kind of leader and very influential, but he still had that older man that pulled him aside and said, Moses, listen. And he also had a Joshua, somebody that he was investing in, somebody that the next generation that he was pouring his life into. Jethro, the father of Moses' wife, Zipporah, listen now to me and I will give you some advice, he says. Proverbs 27 says, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. We all need Jethro's in our lives. We need older, more spiritually mature, wiser and loving friends who've trodden the path ahead of us. In our staff meeting this week, we asked the question of the staff team, who has influenced you most in church and helped you in your walk with God? And it was so interesting and affirming to go around the room and to listen to people say uh, a number of names that are sit sitting here in this place this morning. They had a major influence in my life, that older couple, that older person that I spent time with, that older person that came alongside us. They, they made such an impact on us, watching their faith, watching them walk with God, that intergenerational friendship, a reciprocal relationship, the wisdom of the old and the passion of the young. I wanted to uh, talk to Karen Grimshaw this morning, but she's in Australia, but... She's leading this Gift of Years ministry about working with those in the fourth age and building those intergenerational relationships. About the same time that Jethro visited in the book of Exodus, um, we are also introduced to Joshua. Moses not only had this older man, he had the younger man that he poured his life into. And Charles Spurgeon said, carve your name not on marble but on hearts. Our legacy lingers in our relationships. Never understand the power of investing in a Joshua, in someone younger than you, less experienced than you. It's so vital. James Hudson Taylor, many of us have heard his name. He was a missionary to China. He'd been in China for less than two years when he faced criticism, a lot of criticism, from the established missionaries in the country. And he was very isolated from the sending organization that had sent him. And he was rejected locally by the British consul. It was not going well for James Hudson Taylor. And on top of this, his girlfriend wrote him a letter 
to let him know that she wasn't sure whether she loved him anymore. It could have been the end of his ministry. He poured out his pain in a letter that he wrote to his mother. And he said in that letter, he said, my heart is sad, my heart is so sad. I do not know what to do. And enter William Burns, a fellow missionary that you've probably never heard of from Scotland. He was about 20 years older than James Hudson Taylor. And he took Hudson Taylor under his wing and they traveled together and they preached together and they prayed together for several months. Hudson Taylor went on in his work in China to found 125 schools. He saw about 18,000 Christian conversions and the empowerment of hundreds of workers. But he almost lost it in the early days of his ministry. He was lonely, he was isolated, he was criticized, he was struggling in his relationships. And old William Burns said, come here, James, come and spend some time with me. When I was a young boy, 16 years old, there was a man in our church called Walter. And Walter would invite me and another young man called Derek into his home, and he would read the Bible with us and Walter brought me my first ever Bible commentary. And Walter bought me my first ever um, Greek dictionary. And uh, he encouraged me. And then Walter said, come with me, Jeff. We're going to go and preach. And uh, he took me to the back street halls of Bolton. <laughs> and I would go with Walter in his 60s or 70s at that time. And he would have me give a little five-minute word, a little testimony, a little speech, a little talk. He'd have me read the Bible for him. And I did that for many months around these little mission halls in the back streets of Bolton. Sometimes there were maybe four or five old ladies, and I think three of them were asleep. <laughs> it wasn't the greatest audience, but it's where I learned so much. I learned so much off Walter. I learned so much off um, others who have gone before me and who helped me so much. I've learned so much off Dave and Jean and others that have helped us and nurtured us and encouraged us and mentored us and challenged us and criticized us behind closed doors and told us what we're doing wrong. A little too often at times. <laughs> look out for your Jethro's and look out for your Joshua's because they're so important. We want to be a church that loves and encourages young people, but loves and cherishes older people. And finally, as I wrap up, if we're going to play our part, serving and sacrifice is so important. David was saying this week that a place that um, he, he really got to know someone was serving. He was on a youth camp with Sean. They were washing the pots together. He said, I found out more about Sean washing the dishes than I had in years of seeing her in church. Just serving alongside her, washing the pots together. Serving together is a great way to make friends. I was talking before the service to Judy. She's in our kids' own ministry. You probably never see her. She's tucked away. When I went in the kitchen upstairs this morning, she was making squash for the children. I said to Judy, I said, Judy, how long have you been doing this? She said, well, I started when my child was two. She's 18. I've been doing it 16 years. I've been serving here in Kids Zone, serving alongside other people. She said, I'm a little tired now. I wouldn't mind taking a break, but we need more help. <laughs> we need more help. Serving alongside each other's is such a powerful way to make friends. Ken Shigematsu in his book says, it provides a natural way to grow friendships. In a Benedictine monastery, every monk, including the abbot, participates in kitchen chores. The shared service engenders humility among the brothers. It helps to diminish the pecking order and it creates a way for the monks to build relationships. So Ken Shigematsu is a pastor in Vancouver, Canada, he says, at our church, we encourage people to serve. Among 
other reasons as a way to get to know other people. Cutting carrots and tomatoes alongside others as you prepare a meal for homeless people or hammering a nail into a home that you and fellow volunteers are building for an impoverished family not only blesses those you are serving, but it also can begin or deepen friendships. Joseph Epstein says, selflessness is high among the elements, is high among the elements of true friendship. And selflessness implies the readiness to make sacrifices. Phil Knox says, sacrifice, hospitality, and vulnerability are not just side orders at the table of friendship. They are the main course in our stable relational diet. Sacrifice, hospitality, vulnerability. Those are the three things that we've talked about this morning. We want to be a church that is constantly and naturally reaching out to unchurched people, to be a church where people can belong and experience community and play their part. Small gestures, small talk, hospitality, reaching out to the unchurched. Vulnerability and honesty, the dance of the porcupines, being a place where you can truly belong, and a church where people play their part, intergenerational friendships and service. We want to be a church that is a church of friends. People join churches, said, I think, Rick Warren, for many reasons, or it was um, not Rick Warren, it was John Wimber. It was John Wimber said, they join church for many reasons, but they stay for only one, for friendship. Friendship is so, we don't want to be a friendly church, we want to be a church of friends. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the miracle of church and congregation. We thank you of what we have in common the commonality of our faith and our worship of you. Father, I believe that relationship is at the very core of the gospel. It's, it's to love God and it's to love each other as we love ourselves. Everything else hangs on this. So Father, I pray that we'd be a church that takes the great commandment seriously. I pray that, Lord, we wouldn't miss those moments those encounters where we are carriers of the Spirit of God. We wouldn't miss those moments of small talk when we're just spotting the green shoots of grace in the backyard of people's lives. We wouldn't miss, God, the wealth of intergenerational friendship, the old and the young together, learning from each other, the Jethro's and the Joshua's, we wouldn't miss, God, the joy of relationship. But also we wouldn't miss the fact that it requires sacrifice. It requires time. It requires our presence. But as we serve alongside one another, I pray, God, that we will be friends. And ultimately, Lord, I thank you that all of this is because of you, a friend who sticks closer than a brother, one who has called us friends and not servants. We bless you, God, and may these things continue to grow in our midst as we open our homes and our hearts, Lord, to others. In Jesus' name, amen.